Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. Um, so we're in 2 Peter 2. We're busy going through the book of 2 Peter. Uh, chapter 2 is one big idea, but it's 22 verses. And um, as I was preparing this week, I realized that I cannot uh, make you sit here for two hours. Um, and so we're going to do it in two parts. We're going to be covering chapter two, um, which is all about false teachers and false teaching. Um, and it's a very in-depth passage, and it's a detailed passage, and it would be impossible for me to cover it all in one go, and it would be an injustice of me to skip out things that we should cover. And so um, I'm asking Susanna, she's going to come and do the reading. She's going to read all 22 verses, um, and then we'll tuck into the first part of uh, chapter 2. So, Sue, you're going to use that one? Okay. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and condemned them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul, over their lawless deeds and that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For, speaking loud boasts of folly, 
they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Thanks, Sue. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would give us eyes and ears to see and hear. We pray that we would hear the Spirit speaking. Thank you, Lord. This is your word. And we pray that you would shape us in our thinking, but also in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow. Well, this passage really does pose some important questions for us to ask right up front. I mean, could there really be a more serious crime than twisting the Word of God? Is there anything worse than blatantly lying about God? Is there anything more severe than leading people astray into a life of sin and self-indulgence and false worship? The whole of 2 Peter 2 is aimed at addressing this issue. And like I said, we're going to deal with it in two parts. We're going to deal with it in two parts in the same way that a coin has two sides. The obvious analogy is that it's still one coin. And so this is one big idea, one big thought, but there's too much for us to deal with in one go. So we're going to, we're going to look at the one side of the coin, and I've called that false teaching, And we're going to look at the other side of the coin next Sunday, false teachers. And we will obviously see much overlap between these two things because it's you can't separate them. They they come from the same source. The false teachers are producing the false teaching. But there are aspects that are unique to each of those two parts. And so although they can't be separated, I am dealing with them independently and you will see overlap. <clears throat> so the first thing I want to point out that the text shows us is the place of false teaching. The place or the sphere, the, the, the site. Where does it happen? The place of false teaching. And in verse 1, it's very obvious. We read it again. It says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. The first thing we notice here is that we find false prophets. Peter is thinking of the Old Testament. There arose amongst the nation of Israel false prophets. And where were they? They were among the people, the text tells us. There was a huge problem that was constantly rearing its head in the Old Testament, and that was this issue of false prophets. People who came saying they were speaking on God's behalf, but they were not God's spokesman. 
And so this is not a new issue for Peter, and he's looking back and he's saying, just as there were false prophets in the Old Testament, so looking forward there will be false teachers in the New Covenant era. And so how did the Old Testament deal with these issues? Well, they dealt with it very severely, didn't they? They firstly rebuked them. We have many, many accounts, warnings by Moses, warnings by Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and the list goes on against those who claimed to be, false, uh, claimed to be prophets but were false. And the conclusion was they were to be stoned. Under the law of God, this was a serious crime. It was blasphemy to say God said something when he didn't. And so it was a very serious issue. And Peter is now saying, in the same way, just as there will be, he says, false teachers, where? Among you. Among you. In your midst. In the church. In the body of Christ. In the Christian bookstore. In the Christian music industry. On Christian TV. That's where you'll find them. It's obvious that they're elsewhere, right? It's so obvious. You don't need to be warned about the new age guru on the mountain. You don't need to be warned about the pop psychology manual or the pop psychology TV show. No, that's obvious. No, no, the false teachers Peter is warning us of here are among us. They are Everywhere where we would hope they wouldn't be. And this is an age-old tactic of the age-old serpent, really, isn't it? He's always tried to infiltrate the people of God. Satan has always tried to sneak his way in amongst the people of God. And one of his most effective tools has been through false prophets and false teachers. Not only does the Old Testament speak regularly in condemnation of them, but what you find in the New Testament is that almost every letter also, and I wrestled with that because I don't want to be the pastor who's always nitpicking. You know, I don't want to be that pastor who's always calling out false teachers and false prophets. I, I, I think that's, that's not a nice tag to bear. But the problem is we're committed to expository preaching. And if you're going to preach through the text of the Bible, you're going to come across these passages because it's regular in the New Testament. This is not just an Old Testament phenomenon. It's a prominent feature in the New Testament. And so even Jesus himself in Matthew 7 verse 15 says this, and this is just one of many. Beware, he says, of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. That's the among you aspect. The place, where are these guys? Well, they, they look like us. Beware of them, Jesus. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In other words, they're hard to detect. And so this problem was a real issue for the early church, and it's been an issue throughout church history, and it's an issue today. An early church problem where Paul had to say this in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, when he's speaking to the Ephesian church, he says to the elders, I know that after my departure, 
fierce wolves. He's using Jesus' terminology. Fierce wolves will come in where? Among you. Not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. You see, the place of false teaching is this horrible combination of them being in our midst and twisting things. You know, it's, it's so obvious to detect them if they're on the outside. It's so obvious to detect them if they're bringing something completely different and new, but that's not what they're doing. They're actually using the Bible, but they're twisting it. This is the danger. This is the dangerous place of false teaching. The dangerous role of false teaching is that it is subtle. And these False teachers use the Bible. They use the Bible. They use it incorrectly, and they twist the Scriptures to draw away disciples after them, not after Christ. And they use all the right terminology, and they are incredibly gifted. They speak incredibly well. They have gifts of oratory and prose and good grasp of language and they're funny and they're sincere. Warren Wisby, the commentator, says this, Satan is the counterfeiter. He has a false gospel, Galatians, preached by false ministers, 2 Corinthians, producing false Christians, 2 Corinthians, Satan plants his counterfeits wherever God plants true believers. No doubt he's thinking of the parable that Jesus spoke about the wheat and the tares. He's saying in the harvest, in the church, will grow both wheat, true believers, and tares, false believers. And that will be the situation until the end of the age, he says. Don't try and separate. Yes, identify. But uh, when Jesus returns, he will separate because we might do it wrong. We might get it wrong. And so false teaching is amongst us. It's in our Christian bookstores. It's on our Christian TV. It's in churches and amongst the body of Christ. I wish it wasn't this way. I'm not trying to create an issue here. I'm just pointing it out. This is what the Bible is showing us. It's amongst us. And I think sadly today, it could be even more subtle because of the tolerant culture that we are amongst. This, this idea of, of if you're going to be kind, you need to be tolerant. And so sadly today, the church has gone soft on these issues. Some churches, some movements, some whole denominations think that it's that it's honorable to tolerate everything, no matter what. But that's not what we see in the Bible, even in this passage. So that's the place, the place of false teaching. The second thing we want to note here is the substance of false teaching. We read again in verse 1, but false prophets... Also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Here's what they do. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. 
Now, I want to just zoom in on that phrase, bring in destructive heresies. The first thing we see here is that heresy is dangerous. It is destructive. Heresies are false teachings. These are false teachings about truths that are core to the Christian faith. To believe a heresy is to believe something that is not true about an essential aspect of who God is and what God has done. And so when we're talking about heresy, it really is black and white. It's, it's not, we're not talking here about potentially gray areas, and I'll, t- I'll talk a little bit more about that shortly. This is very clear. We see in verse 15 of the same chapter where Peter says, forsaking the right way. So there is a right way, and he's saying these false teachers have forsaken the right way. They have gone astray. He's very clear about it. They have chosen the wrong way. And so heresy, destructive heresies, have to do with what we call primary doctrines. Central or core truths that are essential to Christianity. Not secondary doctrines. And so it's a helpful framework if we separate out primary truth from secondary truth. Now, you might think, well, that's an oxymoron. How can there be primary truth and secondary truth? Well, the issue is, are these damnable things or are they disputable things? And when we talk about heresy, we are talking about damnable things, destructive. That's why it says it's destructive heresies. Primary doctrines, we could also call false teaching, Whereas secondary doctrines we could call uh, faulty teachings. There is, in my mind, at least a helpful distinction here between what is false and what is faulty. What is faulty can lead quickly to being false. And so faulty doctrine is not a good thing, but it's not necessarily damnable. It's disputable. And so there is a distinction. Let me, let me play these two things out for you a little bit. Primary doctrines, false teaching, are core and central to Christianity. These are closed-handed issues. They are not open for debate. These are closed-handed issues. Things like the Trinity, one God in three persons, the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not just the Son of Man. He's the Son of God. He's God the Son, the incarnation of Christ, that Jesus is both 100% God and 100% man, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the inspiration and authority of Scripture, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, His death in our place for our sins. These are non-negotiables. This is closed-handed truth. Heaven and hell, closed-handed truths. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ. These are primary doctrines that are core to Christianity. So by way of contrast then, what are some secondary doctrines? And these would be areas that I think are just on the outside of what Peter is describing here as destructive heresies. 
For example, these are doctrines that are not necessarily core to Christianity, but they are important to the church. They're important to the church. So it's not that we're saying they're not important. No, these truths are very important. Don't get me wrong. But they're not central to salvation. Things like the mode of baptism. We have Christians who practice baptism differently. And these are not damnable practices. They're important, but they're open to debate. Church polity, how you structure the the life of your church. If you have elders and deacons, or if you don't. If you have bishops, if you have presbyteries or ministers or reverence, or how do you structure your church? These are open-handed, important issues to the church. The end times. The end times, there's, there's, there's four major views. Now, which one's right? Well, I have an opinion, and someone else from another church has an opinion, but these are not damnable heresies. When it comes to the timing, what happens when Jesus comes back, these are open-handed issues. But like I said, they can be a slippery slope. And so we have to apply ourselves not only to primary, but also to secondary. Because these secondary issues are often like a gateway to false doctrine. They can quickly lead, if we don't pay attention to both, they can quickly lead to destructive heresy. We could go on about open-ended issues, charismatic gifts. We could talk about Bible translations. We could talk about worship styles. We could talk about the age of the earth. These are open-handed issues. They are secondary, important issues to the church. But they won't necessarily, in and of themselves, destroy your soul. Now, when it comes to these primary issues, there are truths... And there is practice. And what we find in 2 Peter is that the issue here is not just that these false teachers were teaching a wrong message, but they were teaching a wrong morality. Now, now hear what I'm saying. They were not only practicing immorality, but they were teaching that immorality was good. And so it was a double blow, which is why he's so serious here. Now, what I want to do is I want to, before we analyze the danger, because that's the last point, I just want to come back to this idea of primary and secondary. And I want to, I want to play it out a little bit because I thought when preparing this, this is the only way that we can actually feel the weight of this, is if we give some real life examples. And so let's talk a little bit about, more about faulty teaching, these kind of more open-handed things that I'm saying can become dangerous melting pots that can quickly lead to false doctrine. So faulty teaching, let me give you some examples. Well, the extreme end, in my opinion, the extreme end of the charismatic movement is dangerous. The extreme end. And what we'll find in these movements is that there are these some really strange practices. But the funny thing is, they're not new. In fact, when it comes to all of these ideas of false teaching, none of them are really new. 
They are very old doctrines that the church dealt with many years ago, but they've just been re-envisioned and renamed. Given new names, repackaged, but actually the church has dealt with them in the past. Let's get a little bit more practical. There is a a, a book that you will find, I, I don't, you know, like you'll see my hesitancy, I don't even want to call it a Bible, because in my mind it's not a Bible, but it's, uh, it's on the shelves in the bookstores, and it's in the Bible section, and uh, it's supposedly a translation, it's called the Passion Translation. Now, if you have a copy, that, you know, that's okay, because you don't need to burn it, but I think you should shelve it as a Bible, because... The reality is, it's not a translation of the Bible. It's a commentary at best. The problem is, it's sold as a Bible translation. The guy who authored it is not a scholar in Greek at all. How do you even start You start with the original language. If you're doing a translation, you start with the original language. And if you don't know the original language, how do you make a translation? It's impossible. And so at best, it is a commentary. So it's okay. You can keep it on your bookshelf. I've got a nice... In my bookshelf, I've got one whole section called my heresy section. And and there's some classic examples there. Now, I'm not saying it's heresy, all right? Okay, just... Rewind, don't edit that. I'm not saying the Passion Translation is heresy. It's not heresy. It's faulty teaching to be labeled a translation. It's not a translation. It's a paraphrase at best. It's a commentary. So just use it as a commentary. It's not, it's not God's words. Those are not God's words. It's an explanation of what he thinks are God's words. On the opposite end of that extreme, you have the King James Onlyists. I don't know if you've heard about them, but they're equally but opposite on the opposite end. They are legalists. They they think that the only authoritative translation is the King James Version of the Bible. And we could talk for, for at length about that. But but this is faulty teaching. Again, it's not heresy, it's just it's just faulty teaching. Let me go further. The prosperity gospel on the fringe of the charismatic world, is extremely dangerous. It's faulty teaching that quickly leads to heresy. And I think there, in and amongst it, there is some aspects which we could call heresy. The whole idea of if you have faith, you can be healthy and wealthy. The whole idea that you can name and claim things. The whole idea that you can call things into being, speak things into being. It's incredibly dangerous. And the thing is, they're using the Bible to to, to make these claims. Then we could talk about the whole pop psychology of, 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 of cultural coaching, where pastors become psychologists in the pulpit. And all we ever do is medi- uh, uh, what's the word? mediate psychology to the masses, telling them this. All you ever hear about is your calling, your power, your gifting, your destiny, your identity, your purpose, your finances, your favor, your blessings, your next level. Does it sound familiar? 
None of that is about the glory of God. It's about the glory of you. And it's dangerous. And we could go on and we could go on. And then we get some obvious, maybe not so obvious because it's the whole idea of it being subtle, but the, the, the false teaching. Let me just mention a few that we need to be aware of. Modern false teachings. Um, and let me start with what I think would be the most obvious, and that is um, the, the cults that we are aware of. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism. Um, these are false teachings. These are heresies. They deny aspects that are central to the Christian truth, to the Christian faith. Christian science also denying truths that are core to Christianity. Then there's a recent publication, and I'm picking on it just because I want to give you a, a modern recent example. I don't want to just use these things that are out there. There was a, a, a book that was published, and it was incredibly popular because its story is so gripping, called The Shack. And it is written so well. It's written brilliantly. And the story appeals to the human heart because it's a story of suffering and pain and how God comes and He meets us in our pain and how He heals and restores. And so from a story point of view, it is remarkable writing. But woven into the story is an ancient heresy called modalism. Because the book is trying to make an attempt at describing the Trinity and in an attempt of describing the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it falls into the trap of modalism, which undoes the teaching of the Bible. Modalism teaches, it's an ancient heresy, teaches that, that although there is one God, there is not three persons. What this one God can do is He can appear as Father, and then that same person can appear as son and then that same person can appear as spirit and so although they affirm one god they undo the teaching of there being three persons and so this one god the father can at some point be the son and at another point the father could be the spirit and so they take on different modes which is why it's called modalism and that's not true and it is difficult. I understand it's difficult. How do we describe the nature of the Trinity? It's very difficult, so we need to be cautious. But they are very clear in how they describe it, and therefore it is heresy. Now let me move on. What about progressive Christianity? Progressive Christianity is not faulty teaching. It is false teaching. Progressive Christianity is rife today. It is Christianity that is going liberal. It is Christianity that is selling out on certain essential truths, like there is only one way to God. They would deny that and say, no, you could choose your path. There are many ways to God. Progressive Christianity is also teaching universalism, and that is that well, at the end of the day, no matter how you've lived your life, we all go to heaven. Universalism. It's a heresy. Progressive Christianity is also teaching 
a sexual agenda that includes same-sex marriage. And it is a heresy. It is not true. Furthermore, it is promoting the whole LGBTQI agenda, which in and of itself is also a heresy. And my painful question is, how did we get to this point? How did we get to this point where Christians and churches and whole denominations are selling out to destructive heresies? And the first thing we need to note is Peter is saying it was happening then. You might be thinking, oh, things have got worse. No, no, human nature is the same. Human nature at its core is sinful. And we could go even further back into the Old Testament and we'll see that it was there and it was rife. And you can read the book of Leviticus and you can see it's there and it was rife. Sexual immorality, sexual promiscuity, sexual agendas of all sorts and kinds has always been condemned in the Bible. How we approach this topic is very important. And I think Christians, we've done a poor job. Because we need to be loving, yes, but not compromising. And we need to posture ourselves well in this area. And we haven't done a good job. And so back to the question, how did we get there? Well, it's a slippery slope. Where we begin to undermine the authority of Scripture. Where we begin to say, well, this part applies, but this part doesn't apply. Or I don't think that this part is true, and I think this part is true. And it's a slippery slope where we begin to undermine the authority of Scripture, and we end up elevating our experience above the Bible. And this is how we get there. This is the product of progressive Christianity, is that I know someone who's like that. Or I've been there in myself, and I was hurt. And so what I do is I elevate my experience above the Bible. And I reinterpret the Bible in light of my experience. And we hear things like this. Well, we're, we just want to be simple Christians. We don't want to be, we don't want to be Bible you know, bashers. We just want to be simple Christians. And we don't, we don't want to be concerned about all this deep theology. Because love is all we need. It's that kind of thinking that leads to destructive heresies. Go back to chapter, one, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Listen again. He says, who secretly bring in destructive heresies. And verse 2, and many will follow what? Their sensuality. Notice they are subtle, secretive, and sensual. In other words, it's, it's slow. And it's on the quiet. They're smuggling in their popular ideas. And it's well thought through. It's subtle. And it's sensual. In what way? Well, firstly, I think it's appealing to the flesh. It, it's appeasing. It's, it appeals to my experience. It appeals to my sinful, sinful nature. And so if it feels good, it must be good, right? No, wrong. What, what we, if we play out this idea of sensuality, we see that this whole chapter is really taking aim at a group of people who may even be orthodox in their teaching, but are false in their practice. 
because of two things. One is the reference in verse 6 to Sodom and Gomorrah, which we'll look at shortly. And then the wording in verse 10, where it says this, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. We get an idea there of the of what's happened upstream, where they've despised authority, and downstream, what we've happened, what we've got left with is just lust and defiling passions. And so let's come to the third and final point, and then we'll wrap this up. The danger of false teaching. We see verse 1, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So destructive heresies leads to personal swift destruction. The stakes are high, aren't they? And this is a fairly controversial verse, this verse, especially about them being bought, denying the master who bought them. So are they, are they really Christians? Well, if we just remove the controversy and we just look at it simply, at face value, what we know is that, yes, these are people in the church. And so they are part of the community. They've made a profession of belonging to Christ, but by their actions, they are denying the master who supposedly bought them. And so the idea here of denying the master, the, the, the play here is on this idea of master. Because what's really mastering them is not Jesus, but their sinful passions. And so they are denying their master because they are not submitting to Jesus, who is the true master, as Lord. They are saying Jesus is Lord, but they are living like their sinful passions are Lord. Do you see that? And so the primary issue here is not theological error, but moral error. It is very likely, and most commentators agree, it's very likely that these false teachers are not denying the deity of Jesus. They're not denying the resurrection. They're not denying the virgin birth. They're not denying the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But they are denying His Lordship. They are denying Christ as Master, as Lord. So they're saying all the right things in terms of primary doctrines, but they are living sensual lives in sexual immorality and thereby denying their master, the very profession of their faith. And notice verse 2, and many will follow their sensuality. It's, it's remarkable. They will attract a lot of people. They will come with their Christian language, their Christian talk. They will use the Bible and many will follow. And, and we're going to ask, well, why? Why do so many follow? Well, the answer is because they want to be free. They want to be free to live however they want to live. So I can think and believe what I want to believe, and then I get to live however I want to live. What I believe doesn't have to impose on how I live. And so there's this radical disconnect, and it's heresy to do this. Many people follow because they want to be that unrestricted life. You know, I don't want anyone telling me. I don't want, I don't want Jesus or the Bible telling me how I need to live my life. 
I can believe it. Yes, Jesus is Lord, and I believe in the resurrection, and I believe in the death, but, but don't let Jesus tell me how I, how I should behave in my sexuality. That's up to me. They deny their supposed master. Verses 18 and 19, it describes it even further. They entice by sexual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom. There it is. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. And so why do so many follow? Well, I'll tell you exactly why so many follow. Because you can say that you can have Christ, and at the same time you can have your sin. That's why so many follow. But the danger is this. It leads to swift destruction. But did you notice in verse 3? It says, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. Then it says, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Then he goes on and says, for if God did not spare the angels, and he gives three examples in verse 5 and in verse 6 and verse 7, he goes on, if he did not spare, if, 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 and he he, he looks back to Genesis, the account in Genesis, and he, he, he draws out three examples. Firstly, that fallen angels, and basically, we, we don't want to go into all the detail of that now. It's rather confusing, but there were angels that fell, that sinned, and God did not spare them. And so the point is, if God did not spare these beautiful creatures that he made, how, will he, how, how can we think that he will spare us? And then he goes on and he applies that same logic in verse 5 to Noah's generation. In other words, his logic is this. If the false teachers don't learn the lesson from the fallen angels, then let them learn the lesson from the flood. What happened in the flood? Well, God didn't turn a blind eye, did he? No, no. God swept away the ungodly in judgment. And if you don't want to learn the lesson from the fallen angels, and if you don't want to learn the lesson from Noah's generation, then at least learn the lesson from Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's the next example. And he says, if the case of the fallen angels doesn't convince you, and if the case of Noah's generation and the flood doesn't convince you, then surely the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, God is not turning a blind eye to evil practices. Surely that will convince you. For look at the cities, they are extinct. And so when he says their condemnation, verse 3, their condemnation from long ago is not idle. In other words, he's saying he knows about it. The judge of all the earth sees all things. The case of wickedness will be heard in the courtrooms of heaven. The sentence from long ago against false prophets is not idle. In other words, God has not run out of gas on this issue. God is not idle by this issue. He's not weakened by time. God will judge all ungodliness and heresy in his good time. But then there is a line of silver sweetness here in verse 9. Just when we think that maybe this is all doom and gloom, in verse 9 he says, and I close with this, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment 
until the day of judgment. Peter is not yet just saying God knows how to punish people. No, no. He's saying he's done it in the past. Think of the fallen angels. Think of Noah's generation. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. And we could go on and go on and on. If he's done it in the past, he will do it again in the future. Destruction is not idle. It is, is not sleeping. It is certain. This is the danger. This is the warning. Do not get caught up in destructive heresies. Be on your guard. Be vigilant. Don't follow the crowd. Be discerning. Look to the Lord. Then know the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. We can't escape it. We can't, we can't run away from the evil around us. We're living as exiles, remember, in this world. But we have a God who knows how to rescue when we hold fast. And so either there will be divine protection or there will be divine judgment. And in all of this, we need to be on our God. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word to us today. We pray that you would stir our hearts in these things. We pray, Lord, that you would quicken us and that you would guard us. Thank you that you are the God who is able to keep us from stumbling. You are the God who is able to watch over us. We pray that we too would be watchful. We pray that we too would be alert in these days. Lord, we don't want to be always nitpicking, but we do want to be discerning. And so I want to pray. I want to pray for all of us watching, all of us listening, that Lord, you would keep us. Keep us alert. Keep us vigilant. Keep us humble. Most importantly, Lord, we want to honor you with what we think, with how we think, with what we believe, and with how we live. We want there to be an integrity between what we say and what we do. And so save us from any error, we pray, and keep us on the narrow road that leads to life. In Jesus' name, amen.